Hi and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we are finally flatmates again! (laughs) (laughs) After six months apart. Yeah, it's been a while since I actually lived here. I know. I'm kind of like, in a way I'm kind of grateful I was thinking about this last night because even though we talked about it for like two years, I feel like being forced apart is what made us actually sit down and make the podcast. Yeah, no, that's true. Because, um, like, part of it was just time. Like, we had the time. But then I think part of it was we just wanted to have an excuse to talk to each talk other. Talk to each other about <laughs> all this stuff. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. How's your week been? What have you been up to? My week has been alright. I've been working, so I've been a bit tired. But I had a Waterstones, like, event online thing. Oh, cool. And it was with... It was about Susanna Clark's new book, Piranesi. But it was hosted by Madeline Miller. Ah. So I obviously bought a ticket straight away. <laughs> Naturally. It's not like we just spent three episodes talking about it, right? No, it was so good. Like, your ticket got the book and, like, a print. So that's on its way to me. Exciting. Um, but yeah, it's just really nice. It was just, like, a wee Zoom chat between them. And Madeline was asking her loads of, like, really intelligent questions about her work. And then you got the chance to write in some questions. Mine didn't get read out, Aww. but it was still fun. It was still really good. What did you ask? I actually asked like something that was quite on theme for our last episode. All right. And I asked what it was about, oh, I can't remember exact phrasing, but it was basically like, what is it about like older stories? Like what is it about like passed mm. down stories that you like writing about? Ah. Something along those lines. That would have been a good question. Oh, thank you. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day I'll get to ask it. <laughs> Hopefully. But yeah, that was really good. That was like a highlight of my week for sure. Nice. What about you? Well, I've had a good week actually. Obviously I did my big move, which was weirdly sad. Like, I think I'd got used to being at home with like my parents and my pets and like yeah. village life. It's very sleepy and nice. But I am really happy to come back to like pseudo normal. Yeah. But the highlight of my week is again related to our three week special. <laughs> I got to put my girl Taylor Swift on the front page of our local paper this <laughs> week because um, she donated a bunch of signed CDs to an indie record shop in Dundee as part of this thing she's been doing like globally to try and help the music business survive COVID. So yeah, that was really cool. Like artistic hero, professional life, Mm -hmm. combination, just job satisfaction, peak. So yeah, that was was fun. Oh, that's nice. That's very cool of her as well. Yeah, I know. She's a nice lady. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I know her well. (laughs) Back to business. Anyway. Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? So, speaking of Susanna Clark, mm-hmm. I am infatuated with her novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Ooh, that is a big ass book. It's a fucking beast of a book. <laughs> <laughs> it's 1006 pages. Oh my days. I think the only book I've read that's longer than that is It by Stephen King. Mm. I have my sister, because she's got my copy, I had her look it up for me, and I think it's 1060 something. Yeah. So. Yep, (laughs) it's a big book. It came out 2004 and Mm -hmm. it's been very widely acclaimed. It's like a, it's a big classic. Mm -hmm. 
and I'll admit I'm not often drawn to huge texts like this. They're yeah. very intimidating and like I worry that I'll get bored mm-hmm. and not finish it. And I do like being able to finish a book. Yeah, I know. But yeah, I do have to say, I think the length of this book is one of its assets. I'll obviously get more into the story as I talk about it, but it takes place over quite a few years. It gives us loads of rich history in like footnotes or asides. And it's split into three sections. And what the length of it really does is just give you permission to like get lost in this world mm. and really like understand the characters inside and out. Definitely. I always find that like when I was younger, I used to read much bigger books because that's what you do when you're 12. Yeah. But like I always remember the Inkheart series and they're oh, like yeah. they're like doorstops. Mm. I don't think they're quite that big. No, but not they're pretty big. big. They're like 700 to 800 pages ago. Yeah. And yeah, you just completely get lost in the in the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, right at the start, I was reading it and it was like, I don't want to say it was slow, but it was like, it starts in Yorkshire and ends up in London. Okay. And I think the scenes when you're in Yorkshire are quite like, I don't know, they have a Yorkshire vibe, like they're a bit more chilled out. And yeah. Like, it's a slower pace. Mm-hmm. So I was a bit like, oh no, is this going to be really slow? But it isn't. The story just keeps unravelling and unravelling and then you've got this big, like, epic story by the end. Which oh, is man. just incredible. So anyway, yeah, I'll just get on to telling you about it. Yeah, go for it. Because I know nothing about this book. I'd never heard of it until you I it. knew the name of it and I knew it was a BBC series a few years ago. Oh, was it? But I, I had no idea what the plot was. Okay. So I kind of went in like quite blind as well. So this is a book about two men set in the early 19th century. One is Mr. Norrell, who's mm-hmm. an older man, and he is the only practical magician left in England. Okay. And I say practical because there is a distinct difference between a practical <laughs> magician and a theoretical magician. Okay. So one obviously does magic and one just like reads and theorises about it and writes about it. Okay. This is like physicists. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so the first third of the book is about Norrell's move to London from Yorkshire, as I just said, and his kind of weary steps into using his magic to help people. Okay. Um, so, for example, he's employed by the government to help in, like, war strategy and stuff like that. Okay. And he is, like, a bit of a purist and doesn't want just anyone to be able to do magic. So he has these huge libraries full of books about magic, which he doesn't let anyone read. He just kind of collects them all for himself. Oh, okay, right, yeah. And he, at one point in this, like, first kind of section, also helps bring a woman back to life by consulting a fairy, which leads to many events after. And I'm going to come back and talk more about the fairies in the Mm. book after I've talked about Jonathan Strange. Okay. So, Strange is a young man with a loving wife who has tried his hand at lots of different careers, but he hasn't found the one for him. Okay. And he then decides to try practical magic and realises he has a knack for it. So he becomes a practical magician and after some convincing has Norrell become his tutor. Okay. So a lot of the book is about their different opinions on how magic should be used. So strange things that should be encouraged to be taught to others because mm. it's this amazing thing and it's dying out because there's only one, yeah. one guy left whereas as I said earlier Noro is kind of a purist and doesn't think it, just anyone should be able to learn 
and he even withholds some of those books from Strange. Okay. Uh, like ones he doesn't want him to know the contents of. And I think it's because he's scared of Strange like overtaking him. Yeah. Because he has this like pure talent rather than one that Norrell's like studied for. Mm. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Norrell resurrects a woman named Miss Wintertown who becomes Lady Pole. And she was quite young and died quite suddenly and he brings her back to life with the help of a fairy. And I don't want to get like too into the details of why and what happens because that is converging into spoilers. But I did want to read out this short quote of the aftermath of it. Okay, can I ask, yes. just so that I know what a vibe of book this is, yes. how, how is fairy spelled in this book? It is spelled F-A-I-R-Y. Okay. But... It's quite like it's it's drawn on like historical fairies. Yeah. So you've got like the fae and all the that. Fae. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But they spell they do spell fairy kind of like normally. Yeah. I always just wonder like I think it tells you a lot about like the, the, the tone. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is this week quote. It has been remarked by a lady infinitely cleverer than the present author how kindly disposed the world in general feels to young people who either die or marry. Imagine then the interest that surrounded Miss Wintertown. No young lady had ever had such advantages before, for she died upon the Tuesday, was raised to life in the early hours of Wednesday morning, and was married upon the Thursday, which some people thought too much excitement for one week. <laughs> it's so good. It show, it's like such a good one to show the humour of the novel because mm. it is a very funny book. Like Oh, I, lo- I love as well how I always... I don't know why I always think that classics aren't going to be funny, but they mm. almost always are. Mm-hmm. Like, all of Dickens is funny. Yeah. Most oh, Jane yeah, Austen is, is funny. Hilarious. Yeah. Like... I know. But yeah, this is... It's very English. It's quite dry <laughs> and like... It pokes fun at like society and tradition and stuff. Mm. And I also love that like meta detail of saying like this person was cleverer than the present author. Yeah. Because it's like reminding us that this is a quote unquote real book mm. that we're reading. And as I said, there's loads of footnotes throughout it as well, and some of them are actually like five pages long. Oh, she goes on like that. a whole tangent. And it's often like historical facts of this England or of the history of the fairies mm. so you're getting context but you're also getting like even more story yeah cool. i used to hate footnotes like when we were at uni and we do like stuff out of the anthology yeah yeah and i used to really feel like footnotes interrupted the story yeah but see when they're interested in footnotes yeah oh, they it's so good they definitely can but like i don't know she's just done it in that way where like yeah i suppose it does interrupt it but it does it with a purpose mm-hmm And it's giving you something, it's not just boring you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. See, as I've said before, this is such a long journey that you're on with these characters that I don't want to talk about the story itself too much, but I thought it'd be fun to look at the kind of magic in this book. So I have a few quotes about different instances. Clark said during that Waterstones event that I mentioned that a lot of the magic is literary magic, so for example from fairy tales, Mm -hmm. but there is some historical magic in there, you know. Occult. Real, real magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this quote is set during a war in which Strange has been sent out to help the English. And he decides not to necessarily bring them back to life, but to make like awake and conscious again some dead Neapolitans. 
so that okay. they can get some vital information from them. Right. So, like, they know who killed you and where did they go. Right, okay. Like, um, so, like, kind of to reanimate them but not, like, give them life again. Yes. Right. But because Strange hasn't had access to all of Norrell's books, it doesn't go exactly to plan. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you give people the instructions. <laughs> Unfortunately, Strange was entirely unable to discover the spell for sending the dead Neapolitans back to their bitter sleep. And there's a little footnote there that says, To end the lives of the corpses, you cut out their eyes, tongues and hearts. Gruesome. (laughs) Nice. He made several attempts, but these had very little effect, except that once he made all 17 corpses suddenly shoot up until they were 20 feet tall and strangely transparent, like huge watercolour paintings of themselves done on thin muslin banners. When Strange had returned them to their normal size, the problem of what should be done with them remained. At first they were placed with the other French prisoners, but the other prisoners protested loudly about being confined with such shambling, shuffling horrors. And really, observed Lord Wellington as he eyed the corpses with distaste, one cannot blame them. So when the prisoners were sent back to England, the dead Neapolitans remained with the army. All that summer, they travelled in a bullet cart and on Lord Wellington's orders, they were shackled. The shackles were intended to restrict their movements and keep them in one place, but the dead Neapolitans were not afraid of pain. Indeed, they did not seem to feel it, so it was very little trouble to them to extricate themselves from their shackles, sometimes leaving pieces of themselves behind. As soon as they were free, they would go in search of Strange and begin pleading with him in the most pitiful manner imaginable to restore them to the fullness of life. They had seen hell and were not anxious to return there. In Madrid, the Spanish artist Francisco Goya made a sketch in red chalk of Jonathan Strange surrounded by the dead Neapolitans. In the picture, Strange is seated on the ground. His gaze is cast down and his arms hang limp at his sides and his whole attitude speaks of helplessness and despair. The Neapolitans crowd around him. Some are regarding him hungrily. Others have expressions of supplication on their faces. One is putting out a tentative finger to stroke the back of his hair. It is, needless to say, quite different from any other portrait of Strange. That's so cool. (laughs) I know. I think it's amazing. Like, so, hang on. Does that does a painting like that exist? That's like based. See, on? I meant to look this up. I think it. I think it probably does. Because how do you get that level of detail in an imagined painting? That really freaks me out. Yeah, I know. I actually meant to look that up because I imagine it probably does. Yeah. Because she is doing that thing where you're fitting like this fantasy into real worlds. Real worlds. Worlds. Yeah. yeah. Because I was going to say, if it does exist, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, that's like a scary amount of imagination. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> but yeah, it's another quote that's like really dark, but also really funny. Like, I, I remember when I was reading this and it talked about them shooting up to 20 feet tall. <laughs> like, I laughed out loud as I was reading it. Yeah, that was also such a weirdly beautiful image. <laughs> I know. But yeah, I love how the magic of this book isn't the kind that you just like do the snap of a finger or whatever like it has to be researched and carried out in a specific way and I think that like researchy literary detail is just really cool yeah I enjoy it <laughs> it's kind of like you you always seem to be drawn to that kind of magic as well like mm. it's it's kind of like the Sabrina type of magic yeah. where it comes from like 
comes from the earth, it makes sense. Like, you have to find it and yeah. brew it and learn it, say yeah. it right, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. So, I have another quote from the same chapter, and this is actually some footnotes. Mm-hmm. So, basically, Strange ends up moving the landscape around to help the army because they can, like, bewilder the opposing forces. Okay. And um, he does things like you know, make rivers flow in the opposite direction and so they think north to south and south to south, like all stuff like this. That's clever. And these footnotes are about some instances where Strange has, like, done this before. This is one footnote. Owing to a mistake in Wellington's maps of Spain, the city of Pamplona was not exactly where the British had supposed it to be. Wellington was deeply disappointed when, after the army had marched 20 miles in one day, they did not reach Pamplona, which was discovered to be 10 miles further north. After swift discussion of the problem, it was found to be more convenient to have Mr Strange move the city rather than change all the maps. Oh, how good would it be if you could do that though? <laughs> I know. <laughs> See, this is the second one. The churches in St John de Luz were something of an embarrassment. There was no reason whatsoever to move them. The fact of the matter was that one Sunday morning, Strange was drinking brandy for breakfast at a hotel in St John de Luz with three captains and two lieutenants of the 16th Light Dragoons. He was explaining to these gentlemen the theory behind magical transportation of various objects. It was an entirely futile undertaking. They would not have understood him very well had they been sober, and neither they nor Strange had been entirely sober for two days. By way of an illustration, Strange swaps the positions of the two churches with the congregation still inside them. He fully intended to change them around again before the people came out, but shortly afterwards he was called away to a game of billiards and never thought of it again. Indeed, despite Strange's many assurances, he never found the time or inclination to replace river, wood, city, or indeed anything at all in its original position. I love that idea of this guy just like stumbling about, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna change that round just to show you, and then just forgetting and yeah. wandering off. <laughs> it's so funny. But yeah, I like these ones because I think that first one I read out shows something I can totally believe, which is that the English government would use magicians. Yeah. Just paying them to do like seemingly impossible tasks for them. Absolutely. But also, that second one just shows that like blase attitudes, which strange sometimes has for magic and he's often referred to as arrogant by other people and I do agree with that but I think his arrogance comes from like a confidence that he can do anything he sets his mind to yeah like he does have a raw talent I would argue but he is also very good at the research side and like Mm. striving to improve himself Norrell describes him at one point saying lock a door against him and all that happens is that he learns first how to pick a lock and second how to build a better one against you <laughs> so like that's the kind of character he yeah is, which i think is why he's my favorite i think he's just more fun definitely <laughs> so yeah one major part of this book is that strange and Norrell become rivals and this is not a spoiler it's mentioned quite early in the text and like a prophecy you and can also kind of see it from just yeah, and like I'm sure if you look up this book, it actually says rivals like everywhere. Like this, this is kind of known as the book of like oh two rival magicians. Mm. Like so, I'm not going to go into the specifics of why that is, but I do want to include this quote because I love how it shows their rivalry in such a like quiet, passive aggressive way. <laughs> <laughs> so an English way. An English way. Oh, have you not heard, sir? Continued Lascelles. Strange is writing a book. He writes to his friends nothing else. 
He began very suddenly about two weeks ago and is, by his own account, making very rapid progress. But then we all know with what ease Strange writes. He has sworn to put the entirety of English magic into his book. He told Sir Walter that he would be greatly astonished if he could cram it all into two volumes. He rather thinks it will need three. It is to be called The History and Practice of English Magic and Murray has promised to publish it when it is done. There could scarcely have been worse news. Mr Norrell had always intended to write a book himself. He intended to call it Precepts for the Education of a Magician and he had begun it when he had first become tutor to Mr Strange. His notes already filled two shelves of the little book-lined room on the second floor. Yet he had always spoken of his book as something for the distant future. He had a quite unreasonable terror of committing himself to paper, which eight years of London adulation had not cured. All his volumes of private notes and histories and journals had yet to be seen by anyone, except in a few instances by Strange and Childermas. Mr Norrell could never believe himself ready to publish. He could never be sure that he had got at the truth. He did not believe he had thought long enough upon the matter. He did not know if it were a fit subject to place before the public. As soon as Mr Lascelles had gone, Mr Norrell called for a silver dish of clear water to be brought to him in his room on the second floor. In Shropshire, Strange was working upon his book. He did not look up, but suddenly he smiled a little wryly and wagged his finger at the empty air as if to tell some unseen person no. All the mirrors in the room had been turned to face the wall and, though Mr Norrell spent several hours bent over his silver dish, by the end of the evening he was no wiser. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, if it wasn't clear for anyone, like they can look into like this silver basin of water to like see someone elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but Strange has put up his own spell to, to block him. And I just love him wagging his, his finger, finger <laughs> in the air saying no. Nope. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. I just, I love that passage so much. Oh, man. It's so, like, it's quite, like, cinematic. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I can see why this has been turned into, like, a series. I I don't know how it did. Like, I don't know if it was good or not. But mm. I, I can totally picture. Like, it's very, it's all, that was almost, like, screenplay. Mm-hmm. Like, in another room, he does this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Now, I did say I wanted to talk about the fairies in this book. Yeah. So, let's look at that. And I also just want to give a bit of context for like my own knowledge about fairies because it's not something I'm like super well versed in. Mm-hmm. I know that fairies are a huge part of YA fiction right now. Okay. But if you exclude like older texts, the only contemporary fairy literature I've read is from Cassandra Clare's like Shadowhunter series, and the Fae is only really, it's only really significant focus in like one of her like okay. trilogies. And I know she's built upon ideas from her peers where fairies can't lie, right. but they can often like twist the truth to suit their needs. And they're also very cruel and don't really believe that human life has value. Okay. And while I can't say Clark has used a rule where fairies can't lie, she's definitely gone down the route of fairies being very honest and frank. Right. And I think in this text it often comes across as quite callous. Mm. And... Cassandra Clare has also said that she finds fairies and their traditions and their language like really ridiculous Mm. and I think Clark has really learned into that as well. Yeah because I think fairies like from the old fairy stories that I read they're always either like trickster characters or they're like 
against the trickster characters that like yeah. they like help the hero by giving the truth yeah. but they like a lot of the time fairies can't like they they can't tell for a reason mm-hmm. but they try and tell like in a roundabout way and yeah stuff like that yeah they're like they use their words in very specific ways yeah they're yeah. spin doctors yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i have a couple quotes about the fairy mm-hmm. he's only referred to as the gentleman with the thistle down hair oh i love that which is a good name and this first quote depicts that more like ridiculous or bizarre side that comes with fairies. And the gentleman has just offered this banquet to a character called Stephen. The gentleman <laughs> with the thistle down hair and, so Stephen. and Stephen. <laughs> it is all very wonderful, sir, but I believe I see some plain pork steaks which look very good indeed. Ah, Stephen, as ever your noble instincts have led you to pick the choicest dish of all. Though the pork steaks are indeed quite plain, they have been fried in fat that was rendered down from the exercised ghosts of black Welsh pigs that wander through the hills of Wales at night, terrifying the inhabitants of that deplorable country. The ghostliness and ferocity of the pigs lends the steaks a wonderful flavour, which is quite unlike any other, and the sauce which accompanies them is made from cherries that were grown in a centre's orchard. Taking up a jewelled and gilded ewer, the gentleman poured Stephen a glass of ruby red wine. This wine is one of the vintages of hell, but do not allow yourself to be dissuaded from tasting it upon that account. I dare say, have you heard of Tantalus, the wicked king who baked his little son in a pie and ate him? He has been condemned to stand up to his chin in a pool of water he cannot drink, beneath a vine laden with grapes he cannot eat. This wine is made from those grapes. And, since the vine was planted there for the sole purpose of tormenting Tantalus, you may be sure the grapes have an excellent flavour and aroma. And so does the wine. The pomegranates too are from Persephone's own orchard. I knew that you was going to say pomegranates there! (laughs) Oh my god, you don't get wine from hell without pomegranates in it. Yeah. (laughs) It's so good. I love that quote so much. Oh, I love, yeah. It's just so weird. The ridiculousness. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have much to say about that one, I just find it funny. I was like, I have to get that in somehow. <laughs> I actually, I remember like a few years ago, I wrote an essay on like the technique of nonsense in mm. literature. I'm tempted to go and like rake it out now <laughs> and see how that like fits into the theory of nonsense. Yeah, that'd be cool. So yeah, this second quote is more about the cruelty, okay. which I mentioned before. I also like, big up to your lady for putting Greek myth. <laughs> In her fairy tale yeah, story. I know. <laughs> right. When they reached the house in Harley Street, the gentleman took a most affectionate farewell of Stephen, urging him not to feel sad at this parting and reminding him that they would meet again at the very night at Lost Hope, when a most charming ceremony will be held in the belfry of the easternmost tower. It commemorates an occasion which happened, oh, 500 years ago or so when I cleverly contrived to capture the little children of my enemy and we pushed them out of the belfry to their deaths. Tonight we will reenact this great triumph. We will dress straw dolls in the children's blood-stained clothes and fling them down onto the paving stones and then we will sing and dance and rejoice over their destruction. And do you perform this ceremony every year, sir? I feel sure I would have remembered it if I had seen it before. It is so very striking. I'm glad you think so. I perform it whenever I think of it. Of course, it was a great deal more striking when we used real children. 
Oh man, it sounds like so many people in the small town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's so like amiable, and then you have that final line of like. Wish it was real children though. I love that line, um, I perform it whenever I think of it. Yeah. <laughs> this is just like so chaotic. I know. Um, but yeah, it's so much fun reading his scenes because as I said, they're often quite bizarre. He's quite charming towards Stephen, uh, who spends the most time with him. And then you get reminded of how like brutal and cruel <laughs> he is. So you're reading all of his scenes with the sense of like dread because you're just waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah. But Clark pointed out in that Waterstones event that the gentleman with the thistle-down hair doesn't think of himself as evil. She describes him not as being, like, malevolent, but more like, if a mountain fell on you, a force (laughs) of nature. (laughs) He just is that way. He's just such a fascinating character, and I wish I could talk about him more, but, like, I'll end up giving away the plot points, but... Yeah, he's a good one. I yeah. enjoy him. <laughs> That's made me, like, I could have taken or left that book, but now I really want to read it, because yeah. he just sounds so fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I just want to finish with a quote that mentions some great literary figures. Okay. Um, I don't think I mentioned it too much yet, but, I mean, I have talked about Norrell's libraries and the fact that they both write about magic, but this book is focused on literature, both, like, real and imagined. Okay. So a lot of the footnotes in the book are, you know, they're like a citation from a fictional book. Okay. So, like, one that's often referred to is The Life of Jonathan Strange, which has been written about, you know, it's obviously a biography on it. Yeah. So I just love that detail. I love that technique. But yeah, Clark even imagines the Bronte sisters become magicians rather than authors, which I hadn't even noticed until someone pointed it out at that Waterstones event. <laughs> and she was like, oh yeah, I uh, I thought it would be fun to imagine them as passionate magicians instead of passionate writers. <laughs> Isn't it the same thing? <laughs> but yeah, here we have a quote from Strange when he met Lord Byron. Oh, okay. An interesting character all on his own. Exactly. He's he's in it quite a bit as well, actually. You get, <laughs> you get quite a bit of Byron. I found his lordship at his pretty villa upon the shores of the lake. He was not alone. There was another poet called Shelley, Mrs Shelley, and another young woman, a girl really, who called herself Mrs Claremont, and whose relationship to the two men I did not understand. If you know, do not tell me. Also present was an odd young man who talked nonsense the entire time, a Mr. Polidori. So, for anyone who doesn't know, this is referring to an infamous event, which I know from studying the Gothic. This group of writers had a ghost story competition among themselves, and two of the texts which were supposedly conceived at this contest were Frankenstein Mm -hmm. by Mary Shelley and The Vampire by John Polidori, which is based on Lord Byron, Yeah, the vampire in that. And as a gothic literature student, this just makes me so happy. <laughs> I love the idea that Strange was there for yeah. this like big massive like literary event. And also I love the idea that he's like, there's something weird happening. Oh yeah, he's like, I don't these people are weird. I don't I don't wanna know what it is. <laughs> yeah, him and Byron don't get on. They have like a weird like they have a rivalry amongst themselves. I feel like Byron had that effect on people. Yeah. So yeah, that was it. I just wanted to read it that because it made me happy yeah that is Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell and the reason I read this was because I wanted like a feel for her work before I read her new novel Piranesi 
And I'm so glad I did because it was so fun. Yeah. It's definitely not like an easy read. It's obviously very long and I totally understand that some people will find the footnotes annoying. Mm. I liked them and I thought it would take me ages to read and I actually got through it quite quickly just because it's really gripping. Yeah, because the last time I was here you were maybe halfway through. Yeah, yeah, And probably. now like, I came back I was like, you finished this? <laughs> And uh, yeah, as I said, I've not touched on the plot too much, so that's also there for like you guys to discover. And I can see why it's such a praised book, and I'm excited to read her next one. Nice. When does her next one come out? It is. It's out now. Oh. So it came out this week. I'll be getting it soon. Lovely. <laughs> Happy days. Right. Well, thank you for sharing. That was really interesting. You're and. Yeah, like, fair play for actually being able to pick stuff out of that giant, giant book. I know, you can see I've got many, many post-its in there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so what is your infatuation this week? So my infatuation this week is definitely an oldie, but like it's a goodie. Mm -hmm. And it is The World's Wife by Carol Ann Duffy. Oh, I love The World's Wife. So as you know, but listeners might not, The World's Wife is a collection of poems published in 1999 and it's all written from the points of view of the wives of legendary male figures. So I actually got to thinking about it because of your discussions the last couple of weeks Mm -hmm. on Circe and A Thousand Ships Mm -hmm. and Song of Achilles actually because of the idea of taking a well-known story and telling it from the point of view of a character that's been sidelined. So that's essentially the conceit of this whole book. It's just kind of taken that prompt, if you like, and repeated it loads and loads. And the results are incredible. They range from really tragic to just really funny. There's Mrs. Midas. I love that. I was going to say, I think that might be my favourite, actually. I really like Mrs. Midas. There's uh, Mrs. Darwin, which is like Mm -hmm. a really funny one. I wasn't actually going to read this one out, but it's so short. Let me find it to give you an idea of the (laughs) humour that comes into this. Mrs. Darwin. 7th of April, 1852. Went to the zoo. I said to him, something about that chimpanzee over there reminds me of you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. So, like, there's little limericks like that, but then there's also much more serious ones. Yeah. Circe herself also appears. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember that. Um, I've not read this book, well, these poems in ages. Yeah, I hadn't either. Like, ages and ages, and I just went back to it, because, like I say, I was like, oh... That, that reminds me of, of The World's Wife. So yeah, it's a really fun poetry collection, unlike some of the ones that I've talked about <laughs> on here. But because it actually sticks to the gimmick so well, like even though the individual poems, like some of them are really long, some of them are really deep and tragic, but like the collection as a whole feels quite like energetic and mm-hmm. entertaining because you as a reader know what the game is. Yeah. So like it's in the title. And it's, it's stories that you know already, and the fun is just hearing the other voice telling you. Yeah. So yeah, this is a collection that I come back to every few years, just because I think it's really, like, it's a really creative response to a straightforward yeah. idea. And to be honest, I don't really have, like, a major point to make yeah. about it today. I just thought just that I'd, share like, <laughs> share a couple of my favourite pieces and talk a bit about Duffy, because she's pretty cool and the book's pretty cool. Yeah. I always think, like, because they teach Carl and Duffy a lot in schools, mm-hmm. and, well, definitely in Scotland, I just think she's she's a very accessible poet. Definitely. Like, her, the imagery is, like, amazing, 
but I find her poems are very easy to understand. Yeah. Whereas some that you get at school, you're a bit like, what does this even mean? I think I was reading an interview with her, and I can't don't quote me quoting her, but she says something along the lines of like, she's not interested in heeny like Seamus Heaney words. Yeah. Like she's not interested in complicated language she's interested in using simple language in a complicated way yeah so i think that's what makes it like a really good teaching tool but also just like really fun to yeah. read so yeah just a wee introduction to her for anyone who didn't go to school in scotland <laughs> caroline duffy is pretty famous or at least she's very famous here she was born in glasgow i don't know how famous she is worldwide but like well was she not the poet laureate well yeah that's what i was gonna yeah. say you don't get through the Scottish education system without encountering her because she was the first female Scottish poet laureate. Yeah. I thought she still was that, but she actually retired from that last year. What was it um, last year? Yeah, so she she became poet laureate in 2009 mm-hmm. and then she resigned last year, so 10 years. So that gives you an idea of how prominent that she is. But she's an interesting character because although she's had this very like traditional position in the royal court, she herself is not traditional. Mm. She's openly lesbian. She had quite a famous literary relationship with another well-known Scottish poet, Jackie Kay. Yeah, I love for Jackie like, Kay. Yeah, I love Jackie Kay as well. They were together for like 15 years. And during that time, Duffy also gave birth to a daughter whose like biological father was another fellow poet, Peter Benson. So like... Mm. Just on a personal level, you can already see she's like a woman that has a complex life and she is very vocal about identity politics. Um, Side note, by the way, like, (laughs) I'm on a real kick now for like literary couples. (laughs) I like, I don't know if it's just like. Seeing your Ted Hughes. Oh my god. (laughs) I'm reading Ted Hughes' collection Birthday Letters at the moment, which I'll probably talk about on here at some point. And it's about his marriage to Sylvia Plath and it's just so tender and Mm. like. I think poets being in love with each other is so interesting because A, it's like such a public, like published kind of love, but also like B, it's kind of competitive. Yeah. Like, they're, you, know, you, would, you would be tempted to try and out-poet the, the other <laughs> yeah. one. Anyway, I'll probably talk about that on another episode, but like the, like, the gossip, like trash hound part of me just really loves that shit. <laughs> so anyway, back to Duffy. I was really interested to read about her religious upbringing when I went to research her background for this. So like me, she was raised Catholic, as a lot of people are in Scotland, but she became an atheist at 15, which is like the same as me. So I felt like a wee bit of, (laughs) hey, I see you, Carolyn Duffy. And that brings me to the first poem that I want to read because it comes from a story that I first heard in church when I was little. The story is of Lazarus who was, according to the Bible, resurrected from the dead by Jesus. And the Bible calls this a miracle. But the poem, Mrs. Lazarus, has a bit of a different take. I love this one. It's so good. Okay. (laughs) So this is Mrs. Lazarus. I had grieved. I had wept for a night and a day over my loss. Ripped the cloth I was married in from my breasts. Howled, shrieked, clawed at the burial stones until my hands bled. Wretched his name over and over again, dead, dead. Gone home, gutted the place. Slept in a single cot, widow, one empty glove, white femur in the dust, half. Stuffed dark suits into black bags, shuffled in a dead man's shoes, noosed the double knot of a tie around my bare neck, 
gaunt nun in the mirror touching herself. I learned the stations of bereavement, the icon of my face in each bleak frame. But all those months he was going away from me, dwindling to the shrunk size of a snapshot, going, going, till his name was no longer a certain spell for his face. The last hair on his head floated out from a book. His scent went from the house. The will was red. See, he was vanishing to the small zero held by the gold of my ring. Then he was gone. Then he was legend, language, my arm on the arm of the school teacher, the shock of a man's strength under the sleeve of his coat, along the hedgerows. But I was faithful for as long as it took, until he was memory, so I could stand that evening in the field in a shawl of fine air, healed, able to watch the edge of the moon occur to the sky and a hair thump from a hedge, then notice the village men running towards me, shouting, behind them the women and children barking dogs and I knew, I knew by the sly light on the blacksmith's face, the shrill eyes of the barmaid, the sudden hands bearing me into the hot tang of the crowd parting before me, he lived. I saw the horror on his face. I heard his mother's crazy song. I breathed his stench, my bridegroom in his rotting shroud, moist and dishevelled from the grave's slack chew, croaking his cuckold name, disinherited, out of his time. It's so good. It's so good! Oh, so it's, I love it because it's so gruesome. Mm-hmm. And also there's this like absolute blasphemy in this interpretation where she has all this religious language, you know, like icon and stations of bereavement, all the burial stones. But then in this interpretation of the story, Lazarus isn't really himself, but he's like a zombie. Yeah. Chewed by the grave. So for a widow, her husband's resurrection might not be a miracle because it doesn't erase her grief, does it? Yeah, yeah. And the implication there for me is that these stories, these biblical stories or whatever, are all inherently patriarchal. Because, like, yeah, the miracle of life gets granted back to Lazarus. But, like, what about his poor wife? Mm-hmm. And that word cuckold, because she's moved on now and met someone new, which she was allowed to do because marriage was until death parts us. Yeah. And now, all of a sudden, because he lives, something that was okay for her to do is no longer okay. Yeah. Just, like, changes the rules. I don't know, like, the wee raging atheist feminist in me just really <laughs> fucking vibes. I'm like, yes, what about her? No one no one asked what she would think. Yeah. And yeah, because it reaches back into those days of, like, being at church and being told all these stories. And in my head, like, questioning as kids are wont to do, like, what about this practical thing that mm-hmm. would happen? Because kids are always quite practical, yeah. aren't they? Like, yeah. in a way, we take things at face value, but in a way, we're also, like... But you said that this happened, so logically, how could this be? Yeah. Being told kind of just don't think about it, don't worry about it, like it's a miracle, everything's fine, everything's good. And I love that she's like embodied on the page all the things that this like official version of the story glosses over. Mm-hmm. I just feel very vindicated by it. Yeah. I love the image of the ring is like a zero. A zero, yeah. That's cool. There's so many good images in that poem. <laughs> I love the the shawl of fine air. I don't know why, it just yeah. like, oh, I feel like I can feel it. Yeah. But yeah, so that's like a particularly gruesome one <laughs> from the collection. But it's not all grim though, because I think that would like almost be too easy. 
Mm. Like it's very easy to do want to do like an angry feminist revision of a male centered story. Yeah. But this collection and what I love about it is that it does allow for moments of like sincerity amid the subversion and it makes it slightly more believable. Mm. So this is a nice wee short one about Shakespeare. I was actually about to say, are you going to do Anne Hathaway? Yeah, it's called Anne Hathaway and it's based on the line from Shakespeare's will in which he leaves his wife his second best bed. Which people obviously take for a bit of a slight, but anyway. (laughs) The bed we loved in was a spinning world of forests, castles, torchlight, clifftops, seas, where he would dive for pearls. My lover's words were shooting stars which fell to earth as kisses on these lips. My body now a softer rhyme to his, now echo, assonance, his touch a verb dancing in the centre of a noun. Some nights I dreamed he'd written me, the bed a page beneath his writer's hands, romance and drama played by touch, by scent, by taste. In the other bed, the best, our guests dozed on, dribbling their prose. My living, laughing love, I hold him in the casket of my widow's head as he held me upon that next best bed. It's so good. It's I love that one. It's like, we all know I love a, like a book or a poem or whatever about writing. Yeah. And I just love when she, that line about like, like it's as if he's written me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's so good. I know. His, his touch of verb dancing in the centre of a noun. Oh! <laughs> I love it. Like, I just think it's so sweet and everything about it. It's just like really fond. Yeah. Um, and like obviously I'm reading it out so you can't see it on the page but it is a sonnet mm. so it has 14 lines and it starts off following the traditional form iambic pentameter which like took me so long to work out that it is, that is basically just da dum da dum da dum da dum yeah <laughs> and the rhyme scheme that kind of goes like A B A B so the first four lines it's like world sees words kisses but then it kind of breaks down in the middle where the line ends don't really rhyme but instead all the rhymes become like internal half rhymes Mm -hmm. and it's like for me anyway it's like the lines are getting entangled kind of like the lovers in the poem but then it ends with the traditional rhyming couplet rhyming head and bed which kind of thuds us back to the sadness of like he's dead yeah. Like, I feel like that's words like a kind of ghost in the background of that rhyme. Like, head, bed, dead. And it's the opposite of Mrs. Lazarus. Like, it's just really affectionate. And there's something endearing about the fact that it's an imperfect sonnet. Because it's almost like the wife trying to pay tribute to him the way that he paid tribute to her. Yeah. But she just kind of gets lost in it instead. Yeah. It's just so nice. Oh. Like. Yeah, I love that one. I love, like, that level of detail from Duffy as well. Anyway, so the third and final piece, because I had to stop somewhere, (laughs) um, that I wanted to share is one of my favourite poems to read out ever. Like, it's just so fun. And it's called Mrs. Faust. And for anyone who doesn't know the story, it's a German legend. So Faust was a man who, despite being very learned and very successful, was dissatisfied with his life. So he sold his soul to the devil in exchange for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasure. And there are lots of interpretations of the myth, but in the oldest one, despite Faust's attempt to buy more time, the devil does eventually come to collect him. And he sends his like demon pal Mephistopheles to drag Faust down to hell. Mm-hmm. That's the one that we read. 
at uni, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. I just a side note, I love the name Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles. It's, it's just so such a good, good name. to say. It is. It's so good to say. Anyway. So that's the that's the one that Duffy's going with. Yeah. Um so this is Mrs. Faust. First things first, a married Faust. We met as students, shacked up, split up, made up, hitched up, got a mortgage on a house. Flourished academically, BA, MA, PhD, no kids, two towel bathrobes, hers, his. We worked, we saved, we moved again. Fast cars, a boat with sails, second home in Wales, the latest toys, computers, mobile phones, prospered. Moved again. Faust's face was clever, greedy, slightly mad. I was as bad. I grew to love the lifestyle, not the life. He grew to love the kudos, not the wife. He went to whores. I felt, not jealousy, but chronic irritation. I went to yoga, tai chi, feng shui therapy, colonic irrigation, and Faust would boast at dinner parties of the cost of doing deals out east, then take his lust to Soho in a cab to say the least, to lay the ghost, get lost, meet panthers, feast. He wanted more. I came home late one winter's evening, hadn't eaten. Faust was upstairs in his study, in a meeting. I smelled cigar smoke. Hellish, oddly sexy, not allowed. I heard Faust and the other laugh aloud. Next thing, the world, as Faust said, spread its legs. First politics, safe seat, MP, right on, KG. Then banks, offshore, abroad, and business, vice chairman, chairman, owner, lord, enough, encore. Faust was cardinal, pope, knew more than God, flew faster than the speed of sound around the globe, lunched, walked on the moon, Golfed, holding one, lit a fat Havana on the sun, then back to hunch. Invested in smart bombs and harms, Faust dealt in arms. Faust got in deep, got out, bought farms, cloned sheep. Faust surfed the internet for like-minded bull peep. As for me, I went my own sweet way, saw Rome in a day, spun gold from hay. Had a facelift, had my breasts enlarged, my buttocks tightened. Went to China, Thailand, Africa, returned enlightened. Turned 40, celibate, teetotal, vegan, Buddhist, 41. Went blonde, redhead, brunette, went native, ape, berserk, bananas, went on the run, alone, went home. Faust was in. A word, he said. I spent the night being pleasured by a virtual Helen of Troy, face that launched a thousand ships. I kissed its lips. Thing is, I've made a pact with Mephistopheles, the devil's boy. He's on his way to take away what's owed reap what I sold. For all these years of gagging for it, going for it, rolling in it, I've sold my soul. At this I heard a serpent's hiss, tasted evil, knew its smell, a scaly devil's hands poked up right through the terracotta Tuscan tiles at Faust's bare feet and dragged him, oddly smirking, there and then, straight down to hell. Oh well. Faust's will left everything. The yacht, the several houses, the Learjet, the helipad, the loot, etc, etc, the lot. To me. C'est la vie. When I got ill it hurt like hell. I bought a kidney with my credit card, then I got well. I kept Faust's secret still. The clever, cunning, callous bastard didn't have a soul to sell. It's so good. It's so fun! <laughs> oh, I love that. I love how, um, like, I think you've picked three very different poems to show how different this collection is. Like, she doesn't have the same tone in like any of them. No. Yeah. They're very, very different voice yeah. and everything. 
And honestly, I'm not going to say very much about that poem because honestly, like, I think it says it all. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, one thing that I did think was cool, the other day I sent it to someone and they said, it's got great money, money, money vibes. <laughs> yeah. And it made me realise it's actually written like a rap. Like, yeah, obviously I'm true. reading it aloud again, but when you look at it written down, the lines are really short, like really clipped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the poem compels you to read it in that fast, like breathless way, like I was doing. Yeah. That wasn't a choice. And that is really cool because A, Kanye West is definitely proto-Faust. <laughs> like, rap culture is always, or often, focused on like material pleasures. Yeah. And B, the fact that the poem has its own propulsion makes it so that you feel like the excitement and the blowing up of Faust's yeah. life. Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of like the sonnet, Anne Hathaway, the form really does justice to the narrative. And I just love like that level of detail. I think that's what separates it. That That's what she means by using simple language in a complex way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, that's such a good one. Oh, it's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's so sassy. I know. So yeah, that's that's The World's Wife. And I definitely recommend it. Especially for anyone that's just, like, bored. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a fun one. And like I said earlier, it's a very accessible one. So if you're not... Because I'm not, like, super into poetry, but I love that one. Mm -hmm. I think if you're wanting to dip your toes into poetry, it is a, like kind of any of Carolyn Duffy's, but this particular one is a good one to start with. And as I say, just our, all our discussions about like all these sidelined female characters, yeah, I was like, yeah. wait, I need to, I was going to read out Cersei, but it's too long. Yeah, but I'll need to read that one because I don't remember it. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't remember it either. Did she mention the pigs? Let me find, I, th- I think she does, hang yeah. on, let me, let me see if I can see it. Because I didn't really talk about that in our discussion, but. Yeah, the first line is, I'm fond, nereids and nymphs, unlike some of the pig, of the tusker, the snout, the boar and the swine. Yeah, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that was fun. That was fun. How's writing been treating you this week? I've not really done any this (laughs) week, won't lie. I was kind of struggling to come up with something to talk about today because, yeah, I've just not had the time. And also, I feel like I ran through all my, like, tips. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if I have any more. But what I thought I would do is I'm just going to list, like, three of my, like, inspirations right now. Three things that I like writing about. Okay. In the hopes it will spark some kind of interesting conversation. <laughs> so so the pressure's on me, then? pressure's on you. Okay. No, I have a, I have a wee bit about each thing, but I think mm-hmm. I think it'll end up being a chat. So the first thing, fate. Fascinated yes. by fate. Can never decide if I believe in it or not. Yeah. But that's probably why I like writing about it because you know, it's like open to interpretation. And you're like exploring your own ideas, right? Yeah. And I also love the idea, which I do think we've talked about on this before. We might have talked about it last week. Is that you like assign importance to things retrospectively? Yeah, because I was talking about that with invisible string. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you might look back and think like, oh, that's fate how that happened mm-hmm. because it's led me to this. And I think that's a very cool concept. And that's why my main character in my novel, like 
has those thoughts. Yeah. I'm like, this is me. <laughs> I channel me there. <laughs> I definitely like. I think fate's fascinating because I don't. I don't think I believe in fate, but I think that fate and storytelling are almost the same thing. Oh, definitely. Because I definitely do do that like retrospective thing where I'm like, when I can, I obviously know events probably actually led to each other. Yes. But when I look back, it's like my personal logic yes. sees sees a thread through them. And yeah. so I think that's why, you know, you're you're telling yourself a story and that story is your memory. Yeah. But in telling yourself one particular story, you make it seem like fate. Yeah. Because I always say, like, I always, I do it all the time. I'm like, so I applied to uni to go to... Well, I applied to a few places, but my top two were Stirling and Dundee. Mm. And I didn't get into Stirling, so I had to go to Dundee. Mm-hmm. But then, like, look what happened to me in Dundee. Like, I found loads of friends. I, like, I had, like, a important relationship. Met you. Mm. Like, I don't know, it's just, like, I that that is retrospective. Yeah. Like, at the time... I you was, didn't know that that was going to happen. At the time, I was like, oh, I'm very sad that I didn't get into... Where I wanted to go. Uni, but, like, oh, this place is cool. Like, yeah. I like it. And then, now, but now I can look back and be like, oh, it was fate. It was meant to happen. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I think, like, yeah, fate could just be... Fate could be a mapped-out path, but it could also be, like, assigning meaning. Yes. To so, so that... I like writing about that because yeah. it's a question I still have. That I probably will never have the answer to. So. <laughs> See, another thing I'm obsessed with, you know this one, mm-hmm. sun, moon and stars. Oh, she loves the celestial. <laughs> if something mentions those, I'm already invested. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's so many stories, songs, films. I have lots of jewellery and clothes with stars and moons and stuff on them. I saw a thing the other day that was like, every single writer alive is in love with the moon because who else would we tell stories to in the middle of the night? Yes. And I was like, that's very true. I know. I love how they have like a very mythical, magical side to them, but also like, they're constants, mm-hmm. but have a cycle. Yeah. So like, they can be seen at sometimes, not at others. Like... I don't know why, I'm just, like, I genuinely just love them. I'm, like, obsessed with the ways that we've adapted the sun, moon and stars into, like, idioms and language. Yeah. Like, I'm obsessed with how asterisks are stars. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know why, but that just, oh, fills my soul with joy. Yeah. Every time I see an asterisk, I'm like, I love it. Because (laughs) I love that it's, like... This probably isn't to do with any... I don't know why we use asterisks or where that symbol came from, but, yeah. like, to me, it's, like, it always is a pause, isn't it? It's, like, yeah. oh, this is a break now, and it, like, shifts a time or it shifts a place in a book, and I just love it because stars are, like, this constant thing, and also, like, it's almost like you're pulling the blanket of night down on a scene yeah. and going, like, pretend that some time has passed... Yeah. Look up at the star for a while, and then when you look back down, it's going to be different. Yes. Oh, it's so good. It is good. And yeah, the last thing that I thought I'd mention is that I love like stories and the act of storytelling. Mm. I talked about this loads when we did our myth and folklore series, and I know it's something I mention a lot anyway. But I'm just so enthralled with like the magic of storytelling, and I think it's why those kind of tales like appeal to me and. 
It's Why I Love the Starless Sea by our Morgan Sandwich. I, I will eventually do an episode on <laughs> I just keep putting it off because I know I want it to be like an epic yeah. episode and I keep putting it off because there's so much to say. But, for example, that is a lot about, like, you've got the sun, moon and stars in that one. Mm-hmm. You've got fate mm-hmm. and destiny and time and, like, it's literally just the epitome of everything that I enjoy in this one book. But I love it because it's about stories. It's, like... A love letter to books yeah and I think that's what I want my novel to be as well like I like I'm obviously not going to talk about what my novel is about because you know don't want someone to steal my ideas before it's even published yeah but like I, I have like a like a section right at the start and it's about like this boy who grew up like in a bookshop mm. and I'm just like I just want people to know how much he loves them yeah because that's how much I love them definitely I think like as well you can't go wrong with that because book people yeah exactly love books exactly so. so yeah that was just some random thoughts about stuff that I like stuff that I like writing about because I had no other ideas for this week I think like with storytelling as well it's amazing like you come at it from a very like book romance like yes. you have a romance with the with the objects yes. as well as like stories yeah. and I definitely have that like I love books but I I've seen you get excited at the sight of a new book and like the cover and stuff and it's just so in, like it's so endearing <laughs> to oh. see but like and I love that kind of thing but I don't think I love it in the same way that you do but yeah. I think where storytelling like gets me is when it's like the stories that people are telling themselves yeah about yeah. things that have happened and the way that that all changes mm. and like i because i'm super into like self-referential or like self-mythologizing yeah texts i love the idea that something can be made important by saying that it's important yeah, oh! yeah definitely. like you tell a story and all of a sudden that story just exists yeah i know that is like cool. it blows my mind but yeah that that's that. <laughs> That's that. How has your writing been this week? Well, I'm kind of the same as you, to be honest. I haven't written anything because between work and packing, I just haven't. Yeah. Um, and I don't have any grand wisdom about writing <laughs> to impart. So I was really scrambling for something to say to you in this section. But last night I remembered, I can't believe I forgot this, that a few years back, the last time that I was obsessed with The World's Wife, <laughs> I wrote a piece inspired by it. So I thought that it might just be fun to read that out. That's so cool. I wouldn't normally read out a full piece on here in case I could get it published. Yeah. But this piece is too long for poems and too poetic for prose. Yeah. It's just a sort of nobody's baby. Yeah. So I'm going to read it out here. That's cool. And just background on this, because... Why not? It was part of a project that I did about roadkill. I had just started driving and I'm a really nervous driver and it hurts my heart every time that I see a dead animal on the side of the road (laughs) because like obviously it's sad to see a dead animal but it like freaks me out a lot because it reminds me a how dangerous cars are um, and then I'm in one (laughs) and then b like how the line between like a body and like biological waste is very thin mm. and it's essentially just life or death mm-hmm. and I just think that's fascinating and I was really into the world's wife so I wrote this thing and it is called Mrs Roadkill <laughs> I love that the phone evaporated I walked into the woods and howled I was wet with dew and sweat thighs freezing when the woods howled back 
arms laced in red rivulets and more and more skin gathered under my fingernails, raw. Doe howled back first, low throaty moan, stepped over the tree line on spindly legs and swallowed me in the night of her pupils. She was helplessness. I could not imagine why he never came back, she said. Nose bristles, acorn hard, scent the wind. Taxidermized, she weeps unblinking. She said, your cars are a terror beyond whistling bullets. He had beautiful antlers. When a stag is hit mid-prance, it is usual for the head to separate. It shatters the windshield, seeking hot vengeance. The crimson jelly of his eyes stares into a young girl's as his skeletal crown pierces her throat. Squelch. He pins her to the passenger seat, relegated. I did not tell her this. I said, he should not have been on the road. Her twig legs snapped. She fell down heavy. Then her body became a pile of leaves. I howled, wetter, colder. Vixen howled back, that raped shriek phantom. Emerged from the ground, hellhound on tiptoe. The babies hung from her swollen teats. She was rage. They left him there at the side of the road, she said. Fangs flash. She readjusts uncivil lips. She said, the roar of the wheels woke me, the crack of his broken skull. I'll slaughter every last lamb. The fox had lain there for days, street lamp vermilion, become part of the road, upturned traffic cone seeping gore. Someone had called the council, it was unsightly. Milky with maggots and skin flapping, carrying clean, they tossed him in the composter. He would feed roadside daffodils. I did not tell her this. I said he should not have been on the road. The babies shriveled and blew away in dandelion fluff. The sunset lit a match, set her kindling tail alight. Black burned her bones to charred roots. I howled. Crow answered next. Coughed that vicious craw. Curdled the sky, flesh pink with rotten wings. She was a doctor. Fucking motorcyclists, how many fucking times, she said. Beak sharp, heels high. She folds those inked plumes into her shiny white coat. Beady glances do not see me listening. She said, walking organ donors, the lot of them. When the bike flipped, steel clanging, life hanging in the grace of angles introductory, his head, no antlers, separated. Helmeted, safe, seeing, he rolled, world kaleidoscoping through his leaking eyes, and all the while the driver of the car was being embalmed in airbags. He crumpled the rest of him, so mangled they use a child-sized body bag. Zipped. One percent of roadkill is indiscernible. She did not tell me that. She said, these things happen on the road. I'm sorry for your loss. Then she seized every bit of him, Scalpel scavenging, wings outstretched, beak grabbing each morsel to put it on ice, to feed it to squealing babes, hope dangling. The phone evaporated. I walked into the woods widowed. So brutal. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good though, I loved that. Thank you. It was 
Yeah, I was clearly like in a dark. Going through it. I was clearly going through a time. I've not been widowed. I just want to put that out there. I've not been married, and I haven't had someone die on me that I've been with. I just got really into the character. Yeah. Oh, that was so good. I loved that detail about the the head separating, mm-hmm. and like you brought it back again. Oh, that's good. It really chilled me when I f- when I found that out. Yeah. That like a lot of times deer's heads come off. I don't know why this yeah. happens, but it does. Ugh. So yeah, there's there's a nice brutal world's wife homage for you. <laughs> so, hopefully making it lighter, do you have a quick fire favourite for us? I do. I have a song this week. Oh, yay. It is Choke by I Don't Know How But They Found Me. <laughs> and I have a like story about discovering this song. Okay. So basically, Spotify recommended it to me. And I was listening. The end. <laughs> yeah, I was listening along, having a good time. But I was like, I recognise this guy's voice, but I've never heard of this band. So I look it up, and it's Dallin Weeks. Now, I feel like you won't know who that is. No. No. But basically, Dallin was in the Brobex, which oh, was such a good band. And he was part of Panic! at the Disco for a few years. Right. So he actually came on in my favourite album of theirs, which is Vices and Virtues. Mm-hmm. There's actually this whole like internet fandom like shipping him and Brendan <laughs> because they liked to do stuff like kiss each other's necks and like grope <laughs> each other on stage, you know. Guy stuff. <laughs> just, just do things. But yeah, he's great. And I can't believe I did not know he had a new band because they've been around for a couple of years and oh. it has somehow passed me by. <laughs> Man, that's so good though. I love when you find things like that. But yeah, I actually saw that their band name is kind of a nod to Panic because there's no apostrophe in the word don't. Mm-hmm. There's no comma after how. Mm-hmm. And Dallin said they did that because there's such an emphasis on punctuation with Panic at the Disco because mm. you've got that exclamation point. point. Mm. And he was like, so we wanted to have no punctuation to show that this is like a separate yeah. endeavour. And I just think that's such a fun detail. <laughs> Imagine having those thoughts. I know. So yeah, I'll talk about the song. As I said, it's called Choke. And it's basically aimed at like anyone you don't like about hoping someone will choke to death. Oh, I love that. Uh, but it's really upbeat, so it has that like juxtaposition that mm. we love. Um, because Dallin's a bass player and Ryan, the other bandmate, is a drummer, I feel like those instruments really get to shine, which is cool. Yeah. I always love a cool bass line in a song. Definitely. So the song starts with, Stop, drop, and drag me into place, and lock the fire escapes, I'll break your pretty face. <laughs> and I love how they've used that like stop, drop, and roll yeah. saying that we know, but just being like, no, we're going to lock you in. Yeah. In the burning building. <laughs> I thought I'd just read the chorus out as well, because it's funny. So it goes, Now shut your dirty mouth. If I could burn this town, I wouldn't hesitate to smile while you suffocate and die. And that would be just fine. And what a lovely time that it would surely be. So bite your tongue and choke yourself to sleep. Savage. I love it. I think it's so funny. And it's so catchy as well. And Dallin's voice is just amazing. He's so good. This is such a like fucking middle aged reference, but it reminds me of Karma Killer by Robbie Williams. Yeah, yeah. Where he's like, I hope you choke on your Bacardi and Coke. Yeah. And then, 
Oh yeah, just last I wanted to mention the music video because I often search for the videos for songs I like to see what kind of like visuals mm. they use. And this one is set on, it's kind of like a Top of the Pops type show. Okay. And it's filmed to look like it's in the 80s. Yeah. And I've actually got the description which they've put below the video here. So it says, Pop Time Live was a short-lived music television programme that aired briefly in Eastern Europe in the early 1980s. The show and its producers had hoped to capitalise on the then-popular Italo disco movement, but audiences found its lack of authenticity objectionable. Labelled not for broadcast, it is believed that this particular I Don't Know How performance never made it to air due to the band's refusal to properly pantomime to their own song. <laughs> so I think it's really cool that they've used this trope of like the rock bands complaining yeah. about like having to lip sync, because it's something we've definitely seen before. Oh yeah. And it also adds into that vibe of the song, which is total like aggression of wishing someone was dead because they've annoyed you and they're like annoyed that they're having to lip sync and like he's like playing his bass like so stupid like yeah. you can tell he's faking and also Dallin looks so much like a young Matt Bellamy like from Muse in it oh right it's like it's such a vibe <laughs> <laughs> he has like sunglasses on and like a coat with like his collar Color turned up. up and all that and yeah, that is it. It's a really good song. It will be on the Infatuated mix. Nice. <laughs> I'm excited to hear it. You put a song on my mix that you made for me that I don't know who it's by or what it's called, but it's so angry. And it's like, I don't want to fall in love with you. Oh, it's Rebecca by ah, Against Me. Yeah. 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 And he basically is just so like, I want to grab your skull or something. I want to grab, he's like, I want to kiss you and grab your skull. Kiss you, Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so raging and it's so cathartic. And like, normally I'm not a like punk pop, like I know, angry music. I knew music that one was a bit person. of a risk to put on there, but it had your name. And so I was like, definitely. Mm, and I feel also, like she could enjoy this if she's in a mood. Yeah. And also, like, it just. It's very cathartic. I see why people listen to rage music a lot. Yeah. So what is your quickfire favourite this week? My quickfire favourite this week is an Instagram profile. It's a poetry one, shockingly. <laughs> but it's a really good example of what I deem like high quality pop poetry. Okay. So the profile is Amy K Poetry. Mm. And I honest to God want to repost every single thing that she posts <laughs> um, because it's always good. And the reason that I wanted to point it out is because I think that with Insta poetry in particular, there's like, like a lot of bullshit yeah. out there. Like I love Rupi Kaur for everything she's done for poetry, but if I see one more like Rupi Kaur esque illustration mm. next to a sentence that has three returns in it to make <laughs> it look like a poem, I'm actually gonna lose my shit. Yeah. Like. It's boring me now. Yeah. And there is also like a really boring and sometimes toxic trend of like self-care influencers disguising themselves as starving artists mm. through a poetry Instagram and they'll have like a lot of succulents and very like <laughs> artistically messy desk shots and like yeah. three grand typewriters that it's just like book person porn. There's no actual art being made. Yeah. And Amy Kay is great because her poems do draw from and respond to popular culture. Like, she does have quite a quick turnaround a lot of the time with, like, events and stuff. But there is so much real crafting that goes into them. And also her account isn't pretentious. She's quite sassy and she's quite, like, 
fiery a person Mm -hmm. and she does have visually appealing content but she doesn't like try and make her life seem all perfect and she doesn't pretend that poetry is all that she does in a day Mm -hmm. which I also think is something really like toxic on Instagram yeah so she's a teacher as her day job she advocates for disadvantaged communities and causes that she feels passionate about and she also supplies really interesting prompt challenges and like discussion posts Mm -hmm. so yeah I was basically I'm not going to read out any of her stuff because I think that people should just go and follow her. But I definitely recommend giving her profile a look. I find it really, like, creatively motivating to look at. That's cool. We could maybe repost some of them on... Like, yeah, put them in our stories or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll repost so that people know where to follow her. But yeah, just a nice part of the internet. Cool, love that. Do you have a rant for us this week? Oh, I have a little rant, yeah. (laughs) So, here's a fact that I found out this week that has astounded and disgusted me. Okay. Did you know that in the crown jewels there is a diamond that has a value so high it is uninsurable? Yes, I did. I did know that, actually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, insurers cannot value it. They can't afford to insure it. And experts have estimated that this diamond, the Koh-i-Noor, is worth up to like 400 million euros. And then there's another one, the Kalinin diamond, which is worth up to 2 billion. Yeah. 2 billion! It's a rock! <laughs> like, this is a shiny paperweight. What the fuck is capitalism? I don't understand. Like, I'm not a pure everyone should not have nice things. Like, I love a piece of jewellery mm. like I get it but it's thought that to wipe out hunger in Africa would cost five billion pounds right and we've got half of that just sitting there <laughs> and it's just really upsetting me like also this is this is what fucks me up as well right how does the shiny rock acquire this much value mm. like why why do we care so much about it that it's worth that much money mm. is it worth that much because we care about it or do we care about it because it's worth that much? Like, yeah. this is full-out dragon mentality at this point. Like, we're just hoarding jewels because, like, that's what dragons do. And no one knows why dragons hoard them. I don't understand it. Then I got into, like, a rabbit hole and started reading about Wee Lizzie's wine collection. And apparently, <laughs> people just don't know how much that's worth. Oh. Other than, like, a lot. Yeah. And then it's the same problem, like, who's drinking the fancy wine? Do we just not drink it because it's worth a lot of money? But then how can it be worth a lot of money if we don't get to drink it? How does it have value? I am a Taurus, standing in front of the economy, asking how things that I cannot wear nor consume can accrue value. I need someone to explain it to me because I'm upset. I don't get it. No, I don't get it. I really don't understand why people collect wine because they don't drink it and they just they just die and sell it and then it just ends up in a cellar anyway it's not like you display it yeah and then it just gets all fisty and less drinkable yeah i don't understand what the end goal of this is no and if it's like if it's money that i just just stop buying it and then it won't be worth money anymore and then we can oh (laughs) i don't care no, I don't get it either. So yeah, that was my rant, and it's probably a little bit more um, serious. By the way, like, 
I wasn't pure anti-royal or anything. I wasn't pure pro-royal either, but I would just kind of have been going through my life not really caring. Mm. But now I'm a bit angry. And yeah. I'm like, can we just give the hungry people some food, please? Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway. Uh, do you have an insight for us this week? I do. It is a super quick one, but I do. And I don't actually have someone to give credit for this because I saw it on Pinterest, but it's being ripped off Tumblr right. without credit. Right. So apologies to whoever made this, but I don't know mm-hmm. who it was. And it's just a wee post. It's the zodiac signs as book element slash things. Nice. So yours, Taurus, mm. is hardbacks because you're beautiful and strong. Aww. <laughs> That's nice. And mine, Pisces, is the end. <laughs> the disclosure's bittersweetness. <laughs> Aww. I love that though, especially because I think it was last week we talked about how I always like grieve when I finish a book. <laughs> It's like, that's appropriate. Definitely. So yeah, that's it. (laughs) I enjoyed that. Right. Do you have a question for us? Yes, I've been a question this week. It is from my friend Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. And it's a hard one. Okay. But she has asked us, if you could rewrite the ending of any book, what one would you choose? Oh God! Now this is hard because I'm quite I'm of the mindset of like the author picked that end for a reason, mm. so like I accept that that's the end. But I'm aware that's a very boring answer, so I've tried to come up with right. an answer. But I just always think like the author like I mean we're writers we know what it's like you you go through multiple endings yeah and you end up picking the one that you're like no that's right that fits the story like mm. so the fact that someone could read it and be like well I think that's wrong I'm like oh maybe maybe an easier way to approach it would be from the point of view of someone that loves the characters what ending would you have preferred them to have or something I don't know yeah so like I did come up with an answer okay what's your answer so my answer even though I love this book with my whole heart, is Jane Eyre. Right. I like the ending. I like that she ends up with Rochester. But it basically there's... I know you've not read it, so I'll try and explain it. Mm. But, like, there's the big climax of the book. There's this, you know... Ah, I'm just going to say yeah, it. Yeah, just Jane Eyre. Yeah. He's on the roof. <laughs> his, his other wife has escaped from the attic and falls and dies. And it's this whole big dramatic thing. He ends up blind. And Jane kind of goes back to him and cares for him and then he eventually gets his sight back, which is very nice. But you just kind of get that big dramatic point mm-hmm. and then it like cuts to Reader I Married Him and you get like a, a yeah. filling in of everything that happened. And I think my answer is that I like that they end up together and he mm-hmm. gets his sight back and all of that. But I wish you'd had the bit in the middle where she's yelling at him yeah. for not telling me that you had a, a wife in the attic for ages. Yeah. Like, I just wish you could have seen the scene where she's confronting him and she's like, you're an idiot. And he's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wish you got to see that. Yeah, that's fair. That's very <laughs> fair. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think what book I would change the end of all. Mm. I'm going to go with my bookshelf. Go for it. I know. <laughs> so, 
before I say this, the ending of this book, as you're saying, it makes sense mm -hmm. for the story. It is what would have happened. And it yeah. is also the only viable end that the author could have given based on like the values of the time they were publishing in. Okay. But Tess of the Durbervilles deserved better. Oh, good answer. She went through so much in her life and then she eventually got to kill the guy that raped her. And I was so happy. And then she was holed up with the guy that she loved in this idyllic little house. And then eventually she just goes, yeah, but we have to go and face the music, don't we? And then she dies. Yeah. For, you know, murder. Which, <laughs> like... And based on when it was published, I understand that he had to make it that the fallen woman doesn't get to live. Yeah. Because people would have rioted. Yeah. But I just wish that she'd been allowed to live. I wish that she'd yeah. been allowed, or it had, like the, maybe the book had just ended when they were in that cottage and like we all would have known that yeah. she wasn't going to be able to stay there forever, but I just, I wish I hadn't had to see her die. Yeah. It was too much for me. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. I love how we both went to like... Classics. Classics. Yeah. <laughs> I think with new ones it's too like, it'd be too easy almost. Yeah, I, I also just don't like when, because I obviously, I talk about Cassandra Clare all the time, I know, mm. but like, she's quite active on like social media and she's quite happy to sort of talk about her characters and stuff, but you always get people asking her like, why do you do this, why do you do that, and it's like, because she did, yeah. like, it's a book, you read it and that's the story, yeah. you don't get to demand that she changes stuff. Like, yeah, like, it's almost like that bit of, like, The Fault in Our Stars, you know, where they, like, go to Amsterdam to ask, like, what happened to the hamster? Exactly. And the guy is an asshole, like, the author, he's, yeah. he's horrible to them, but I think his point is valid, where he's like, is a book it finished when yeah. the book finished? Well, because that's, like, John Green's philosophy, like, mm. I, he said it so many times, he's like, because people ask him often, like, oh, what happens to Hazel after the fault in her yeah. stars? And he's like, well, I don't know because I didn't think about it. Because yeah. I wrote the book and that is the book. And, and that's the end. I've not thought about what happens. And he's like, you can imagine what happens, but I'm not going to tell you if you're right or not because I've not written it. Yeah. And also, if I did write it, if I did tell you, then it becomes canon. And then yes. it becomes, like, legally profitable yeah. and weird and, like, just... That was the book, just accept it. Yeah. Like, we, we all, like, wish, like, if we love a book, we all wish we could read more of it. Yeah. But, like, it ended there for a reason, that's always my opinion. Definitely. And sometimes it's, like, a gift that there isn't more, because then you can live with those characters forever and ever. Yeah. Like, their yeah. story doesn't properly end. Yeah. Whereas some authors like <laughs> to take <laughs> beloved fantasy series... <laughs> And just keep writing things that undo the plot points of the first yeah. original series and make you hate them. Oh, I could, I could have a rant about I that author. I could have a rant about that author too, but I think maybe it's best we don't. No, I think, I think so as well. Not for this week. We'll save that. <laughs> well, that was a good question though. Yes, thank you, Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. to end this podcast three times and we keep laughing <laughs> oh dear right, right okay. okay let's do it oh. that was a good one
was a good episode. It was a good episode. <laughs> I'm proud of us. I think we did well. If you have any questions or comments for us, please email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media, which we have lots of plans for, so we're going to be posting on a lot more, yes. hopefully. Um, so please go follow us there. The links are in the show notes, along with everything that we talked about today. The Infatuate mix is in there as well, so that's all the music that we mention. And... Is that us? Anything else? I think that's us. Um, We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.